Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One of the 20th century's most significant leaders in psychiatry was Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was born in Austria-Hungary in 1905. As a young man, he studied at the University of Vienna Medical School and corresponded with another Austrian psychiatrist, Sigmund Freud. He earned his doctorate in medicine in 1930 and practiced for the next decade. This was a challenging time in Austria, especially for a Jewish doctor like Frankl. Nazism was spreading and Jewish citizens of Austria and other European countries were under threat. In 1942, Frankl was sent to a concentration camp in the Czech Republic. Over the next three years, he was transported to four different camps, and his wife and mother were both killed. Frankl was already an influential leader in psychiatry by the time the war started, but his experiences in the camps would come to define his work. When the war ended, he returned back to Vienna, where he wrote his best-selling book, Man's Search for Meaning. And so what, what Man's Search for Meaning is about is um, a reflection, a deep reflection, on his time in concentration camps and what he saw. And sort of it's a mix of a professional uh, psychiatrist looking at things and a person experiencing them. And what he came down to was that uh, that experience was an enormous assault on the sense-making that people have, the skill they have to make, place themselves in an ordered world and make sense of things. So I'm Arthur Kleinman. I'm both an anthropologist and a psychiatrist, and I've been a professor at Harvard for 43 years. In the concentration camps, Frankel saw his fellow prisoners starved, tortured, and killed and he saw people struggling to make sense of their experiences. Some succeeded, others didn't. And it was his interpretation, and purely an interpretation, that um, those who succeeded did better and, and endured, whereas that those who didn't, didn't. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Arthur Kleinman to discuss Man's Search for Meaning. This book has been hugely popular. It was translated into at least 24 languages, and it continues to impact the field of psychiatry, including Professor Kleinman's own work. It's a very popular book. You always see it in thrift stores and you know, yeah. bookshops. Yeah. Why, why do you think it... I think it's a, it's because it you don't have to be in the concentration camps and have that extreme experience. It's any um, shocking, difficult experience, any health catastrophe, um, any financial disaster, a, a social problem of serious nature, anything that confronts you with a with a an assault on your sense of order that knocks you out of everyday reasoning and makes you search for some kind of explanation 
to make sense of things. Frankel published Man's Search for Meaning in 1946. Before the war, Frankel had developed a theory of psychiatry called logotherapy. Logotherapy is based on the idea that people are primarily motivated to find meaning. Logotherapy is sometimes referred to as the third Viennese school of psychotherapy, after Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler. Freud believed that man's primary goal was to seek pleasure. Adler believed it was to seek power. But Frankel believed it was to seek meaning. According to Frankel, meaning came from three sources, purposeful work, love, and courage. And his idea was that making sense of your world was almost like a physiological response of your heart and lungs and um, the rest of your body to stress, that making sense was what you needed to do to keep going. Um, now, all of this is, in a sense, uh, speculative. The scientific base for some of these things are good, for others not so, not so good. But I think it's really important that he got at this drive toward meaning, that you find yourself in a difficult situation, it disorients you, it confuses you, and all of a sudden you try to figure out, um, well, how do I make sense of this? Why has this happened? What's happened? Professor Kleinman has also done work in the study of meaning-making. He studied people who had lived through the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution was a time from 1966 to 76 when Mao Zedong felt his power was slipping away in the, in the Communist Party, and he organized a popular attack against the party so he could regain control. And during that period of time, everything traditionally valued in Chinese society was upended so that the top, in terms of the hierarchy of prestige, became the bottom. For example, um, teachers always have been highly regarded in China. But at that stage, students were encouraged to attack, beat, criticize their teachers. Intellectuals always were a source of moral reflection on the society. They were now reduced to almost enemies of the state, the lowest level of people to be trusted. Trouble wasn't limited to the classroom. For the first time in Chinese history, the political rulers interfered in the family. The family was always where political power stopped. And within the family, that was the domain of the people who were part of that vehicle, the family vehicle, which was seen as immortal beginning before you came on, going on afterward, starting with your ancestors, going on to your descendants, and your place in it was temporary, okay? It was like this immortal vehicle that represented the civil side of society. Professor Kleinman completed his studies in the 1970s and 80s and published his findings in a book called Social Origins of Distress and Disease. He found that the people he studied all had similar physical symptoms. The symptoms they had principally were dizziness, pain, and um, fatigue. And the diagnosis they were given, in Chinese it's shen jing shuai ruo, or in English, neurasthenia. In 1869, an American neurologist, George Beard, invented the term trying to make sense of why people uh, seem to come apart in, under the stress of what he thought 
were civilizing movements. So even as early as 1869, there was a sense that America was leading the world in building a new society. And there were these people falling by the wayside who didn't seem to have the energy to continue in this very high-energy setting. And that term was picked up by the Chinese um, in uh, either from medical missionaries or others, and then used to relate to many different conditions that we would, in America, call depression, anxiety, other problems. They had sort of a reactive sadness, we, we would say. They, they um, had been injured by the Cultural Revolution. Today, probably most of them would be given the diagnosis at that time, had we, if we could move that time right to now, of PTSD, because their central issue was trauma, usually psychological trauma, sometimes physical trauma. And um, these people were also experiencing what Frankel had described. And so in the Cultural Revolution, you had all these terrible things happen. You know, students attack teachers, children attack parents, wife and husband go after each other. And um, literally, the values were turned upside down, and people were trying to make sense of this. And those three symptoms I mentioned were an indirect way, because you couldn't be too direct in criticism or you would have gotten into trouble with the political authorities. But the dizziness meant the dizziness of the political campaigns, which had made pe people vertiginous in terms of understanding where they stood in the world. The pain was the pain of being attacked. And the um, uh, other symptom, which was exhaustion, was a sense that people couldn't go on, that too much had happened, too much energy was expended. They just had lost their vital essence. In Chinese, that's called qi, their, their vitality. Within this, people were searching for some way to make sense of their world. The revolution was a time of radical change. The country experienced a tectonic shift, and people had to find a new way to make meaning in their lives. Meaning itself is part of experience. The Chinese for experience is tian or jingyan. And experience is that flow of interactions between us that occurs in a local world where we, where we are part of. It could be the local world is our workplace, our neighborhood, our village, our friendship network, etc. And in that local world, um, we are usually sort of in simpatico or in, in um, agreement with uh, what people take to be important or in the terms that I use, what uh, members of that world regard as what is truly at stake, okay? Could be anything from status to making money to uh, searching for a quest for the good and the beautiful or whatever, whatever is central to that local world, we generally are in sync with it. But there are times when we fall out of uh, our agreement with it and we have a controversy or we have a conflict with what is local. Um, so, for example, during the Cultural Revolution, when it overthrew everything that had been the case in traditional China, all of a sudden people who are intellectuals were not valued for their reading, for their writing, for their intellectual work, and were made into workers. And they were at a loss to make any sense of this world. But it wasn't just meaning 
that they were concerned with or any meaning. It was value. It was the meanings that really mattered the most to us. Professor Kleinman calls this moral meaning. This type of meaning is about what matters ethically to a person or a group. What is at stake for them? And what is at stake for their community? If a person's moral meaning is in conflict with their communities, there can be problems. Let me give you a case in point. Young doctor joins a uh, health organization to practice and practices for a few years without thinking too much, just enjoying and contributing in his caregiving of patients. And then all of a sudden he realizes, you know, this practice is not really interested so much in the health of patients. They're interested in treating patients like profit centers and generating income. And so all of a sudden, that doctor becomes critical of that local world. And my sense is that's a moral criticism. That's a criticism of what he regards as most important, being different from what the group regards as most important. And that leads, in my view, to ethical aspiration, aspiring to find something that extends beyond the local. Now, when we do that, we might draw on religion, our religious background. We might draw on the writings of ethicists, uh, for example. Uh, we might draw on some other source of moral content uh, in trying to propel ourselves out of the local and beyond it. We can see this quest for meaning playing out on a small scale within the caregiving system in the United States. Professor Kleinman wrote about this in his 2019 book, The Soul of Care, The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor. And that book tells two stories. It tells the story of my own moral development um, from a child to a primary caregiver from my late wife who had Alzheimer's disease. And it also tells a story of caregiving in our time and of how people who look like the people that Frankel was interested in, anyone who had a, such a serious rebuff from life that they felt devastated and lost, how people have um, come to deal with this, not just for, with a quest for meaning. The horrors of a Nazi concentration camp are, of course, very different than the pain of serious illness. But in both cases, Kleinman argues, there is the same drive to create meaning. And, Kleinman says, caregiving is a central part of meaning-making. The real glue, the social glue of our society in America and all societies is the care that's given in families and in networks and in local worlds. We see this most clearly when someone falls ill, okay? You fall ill and all of a sudden your mother or your siblings or if you're, if you're uh, an elderly person, your adult children begin to take care of you, etc. Care is what makes us most human. But most caregivers don't have the resources they need, the time, the money, or the ability. So more and more, institutions are taking on that caregiving responsibility. And in these institutions, we have something that was described in 1920 by the great German sociologist Max Weber as institutional authority. And he said that institutions would be powerful because they could be the most efficient 
aspect of society. They could quantify. They were big bureaucracies. They could be enormously efficient in the way they organized everyday activities. Okay. And he said that uh, part of that would be productive, but a lot of it would lead to what he called an iron cage of rationality. And that iron cage of rationality, he said, would mean that these rational technical rules would come to infiltrate every part of society, leaving men and women with less opportunity for spontaneity, less um, uh, resource to bring tradition to bear, and less skill in introducing their feelings, or what he called sentiments, into such a coldly rational space. And basically, he described the modern hospital. The modern hospital has different priorities and limitations than home caregivers, and it has different measures of success. So we count the number of people who go through hospitals in a certain period of time and receive the following kinds of care, of treatments rather, um, over for how much cost, with what kinds of outcomes. But actually, if we measured care, we would be measuring relationships, the quality of your relationship with your nurse, with your doctor, with a nursing aide. We would be measuring communication. When you have a, a gallbladder operation and you leave the hospital, has anyone told you in your family that you're going to be leaving with two tubes coming out of your abdomen and this is how you take care of them? Turns out most of the time nobody tells anyone that. So families are shocked to see that they've got to give care, but no one's told them how to do it. Okay. And similar things. So in this kind of a setting, um, care for me is the human. The difference here is between treatment and care. Treatment is about the illness, and care is about the person. The first two acts of care, I'd say, are the ethical dimensions of care. They're the acts of acknowledgement and affirmation that affirm that you are a human being and I'm a human being and I'm here to respond to you in those terms. That is, as a fellow human being. You're in need. I have the skill. I'm here to, to do that. Typically, doctors perform this care by looking into the patient's eyes or putting a hand on their arm to reassure them. But doctors increasingly use computers as a diagnostic and treatment tool. So their attention has shifted away from the patient and toward the computer screen. There is less personal attention, and there is less time for the doctor and patient to form a relationship. So in this quest for bureaucratic efficiency by the hospitals and clinics, the time that doctors have to talk with patients has gotten incredibly compressed. Of course, new technologies do deliver treatment effectively and efficiently, oftentimes much more so than a doctor. So today, when we have so many precise tests of bodily function from the um, amount of blood that your heart puts out to the way that your kidneys work, to your status of your liver, that no doctors today uh, truly believe that their physical examination is going to produce the kinds of results that the uh, technical equipment can produce. Hence, you get either a cursory or almost no physical exam. But that's something is lost in that. 
because the physical exam was always the point at which the laying on of hands occurred. That was the human connection between doctor and patient. That had a physiology all of its own associated with the placebo uh, response and, and other sorts of things. And so that's been uh, diminished. And over the whole, medicine and even to some degree nursing are losing care as their central activity. This is a problem in institutional care settings, but families still take on much of the caregiving work. This was the case for Professor Kleinman. So my wife took care of me for 36 years. And then for the last 10 years of our marriage, from 36 years to 46 years, I took care of her. And her Alzheimer's disease was early onset, started in her late 50s rather than in her 80s. And it took away her reasoning capacity, her memory, uh, her judgment, um, her control of emotions, etc. But it also did another thing, which was that it, having started in the back of the brain, in the occipital lobes that are responsible for making sense of visual images, she became functionally blind as well. So she had both dementia and blindness. And I was taking care of her. And this uh, meant that at some stage of uh, maybe four or five years into the caregiving, I was doing just about everything, um, which I'd never imagined I could even accomplish. So I was uh, bathing her, feeding her, dressing her, uh, helping her walk, attending to all her needs. And they were basic, those needs. And then at about that time, I realized I couldn't do this alone. And um, my family helped me a great deal, gave me respite time, contributed to a number of these activities. But even they saw that with all of us working, it wasn't enough. And so um, I had to hire a home health aide. And fortunately, uh, my late wife, Joan, and the home health aide had a great relationship and were able to do things together. And so we settled for a number of years into a situation in which my home health aide worked from nine in the morning till five in the afternoon. And I worked from five in the afternoon till nine in the morning. And we were able to get through things uh, at that stage. But at some point, um, caregiving becomes a, a story of enduring the unendurable. It's so difficult, it's so trying so upsetting, so frustrating. And it leads the caregiver to some of the same questions that Frankel raised. That is, to wonder, what am I doing here? Or what does this all mean? And remarkably, that is one of the positive aspects of caregiving for catastrophic health conditions, and that is that the caregiver sees that there's a purpose to this. They're needed, and the caregiving produces good effects. This is at the heart of Frankel's book. Frankel wrote, in some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. And so 
it made me realize that Frankl was both right and wrong. He was right on the quest for meaning, but he was wrong not to relate the quest for meaning to what I would call the art of living. That this quest for meaning is to get at the deepest understandings of what matters for us in any moment and to use it to help us endure. I don't like the term resilience. It's too uh, optimistic, too triumphal a term. I like the idea of endurance. And one of the ways you endure is that the sense of purpose you get out of doing these acts, that this is in a, in a world so filled with cynicism and meretricious um, uh, uh, things around us, um, this is one of the things you can commit yourself to and feel authentically that this is something fundamentally good. And so that's the final dimension of the book, which is that caregiving is one of the ways of doing good in the world. And it teaches us the importance of doing good in the world. It's about helping people one at a time. Uh, it's about building and sustaining family and friendship relationships. It's about helping people in real need. Frankl introduced a new theory of human motivation. People strive to make meaning, and they find meaning in purposeful work, love, and courage in the face of difficulty. His influence can be seen across the field of psychiatry, including in work like Professor Kleinman's. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombrian, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. You also heard music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts and links to the books we discussed. Thanks for listening. See you next time.